0: Good morning all. We are going to uh, today do our Bible survey in John, Module 4, Session 12. And so if you're if you're keeping track, um, we're going to be done. There's Session 13 and Session 14, and we're done with Module 4. Uh, session 13 is a survey of covenant theology and dispensationalism that will probably take a couple of weeks. I, I don't want to rush through that because that's a big issue in our day. When we finish module four, I'll take uh, probably a week in between, and I want to do something we do every two or three years, and it's uh, the reasons we trust the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, and I'll, I'll explain that as we, uh, in fact, a little bit this morning about that, because that's an important issue, especially if you're studying any of those, and you buy uh, materials, commentaries that uh, begin to put down the trustworthiness of those Gospels, because there are a lot of them. So today we're going to go through John, and uh, this is one of my favorite Gospels. It's tied for fourth uh, of all my favorites. So I don't know, tied for first, however you want to say it, but we're all, we're all uh, we love them for different reasons, and John is a tremendous example, and a very specific purpose to John. So let's pray together, and then we're going to walk through this book together. Our Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day how glorious it is to stop our difficult lives, to stop the labor with which we labor, as Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, under the sun in days that sometimes seem vain, as he says. But when we gather together on the Lord's day, we remember eternity. We remember Christ. We remember the cross. We remember His resurrection, His ascension. Is soon coming. And so this is our glorious opportunity to step off the difficulties of the world for a moment and to remember Christ. I pray, Lord, that that would be our focus this day, that we would remember our Lord and Savior, that we would worship together, and that we would be heavenly-minded this day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So, the Gospel of John. Like all the gospels, uh, the Gospel of John has always been called according to John. That has been the traditional name, uh, but John never names himself as the author. There are uh, ways we know he's the author, though it's it's very clear he is the author. Uh, John twenty one twenty four says, "This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things, who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true." Uh, there are those that feel there was an editorial process with multiple authors that sort of thinking generally comes way later in history i prefer to believe those that were um, around the earliest the early church fathers were unanimous that john was the sole author and an important witness to this is a guy by the name of polycarp polycarp said that john is the sole author this is important because polycarp was discipled by john so i think that's a pretty good witness There's some unique features to John. 92% of John is unique to this gospel. And so uh, it's, it's very different than the other three. Depending on how you count them and define them, Jesus taught between 32 and 38 distinct parables in the gospels. And none of them are in John. That's not his point. The parables are not the point in John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the Synoptic Gospels because they're very parallel to each other. Uh, John is completely unique. Uh, As you go through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you can almost lay one on top of the other. And that's why in a few weeks, I'm going to do a little talk that we call Reasons to Trust the Synoptic Gospels. I know you trust them, but all kinds of people don't. Um, There are commentaries and there are entire schools of thought, there are seminaries that teach that the synoptic gospels contradict one another. And in fact, if you, if you talk to an unbeliever and you ask them, why don't you believe the Bible? They might say, well, because there's the gospels and they contradict each other. The short answer is to just say, please show me one place, because they don't. And so scholars years ago coined a term called the synoptic problem. There is no problem, first of all. The the Gospels fit exactly together, but because this is still a major issue, and and I'm going to say, out of all the seminaries in our country, probably 95% of them believe there is a synoptic problem. I I want you to know the truth, and so we'll do that in a few weeks. But it's very clear that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are very close. There's well over 200 um, places of what we call triple tradition, where the same event is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But John is just totally different. It's completely unique. And John is very clearly the most explicit about the deity of Christ. You cannot get away from the deity of Christ in the Gospel of John. If somebody is struggling with that issue, you point them to this Gospel. John's Gospel is also most explicit about the length of Jesus' ministry. Three, probably four, Passovers. In fact, John puts the pieces together of the flow of Jesus' life and ministry and without John... Without plugging John into all the other places in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, we really wouldn't have a good continuous timeline for the life of Christ. But we do, and we can we can narrow it down to um, somewhere in the vicinity of 42 months was the ministry of Jesus, which is very interesting because 42 months uh, is a, a is a big number in the Bible uh, as far as like the end times goes. It also comes from a unique historical perspective, and and this will become clearer as we go at why this is important. Matthew, Mark, and Luke were written before the destruction of Israel in 70 AD. Where is that? Yeah, unique historical perspective. Before the destruction of of Jerusalem. John is written well after that. 15 years or so. Maybe even 20. John is an old man and by now... Every Jew on planet Earth has been displaced to one level or another. What what the Bible calls the diaspora, the dispersed Jews. And we'll see when we get to the purpose why this is so important that John is written after the destruction of Jerusalem and after the dispersion of all the Jews around the world. The author, again, is John. He is only called the disciple Jesus loved in in John. uh, John 21.20 now, it's interesting, you might say, well, th- that sounds kind of terrible that he would call himself the disciple that Jesus loved. He's simply reflecting how Jesus treated him, and he doesn't name himself as the author, so he's actually being quite, um, quite humble. But he is loved, and it has the idea of special favor. And he was given special favor as the disciple that Jesus loved. Uh, Jesus inferred in John twenty-one twenty-three that John would be the last apostle to die. And that came true. That did come true. He has one of the two places of honor at the Last Supper. Um, he is sitting by Jesus um, during the Passover, that final Passover. He's seated by Jesus, which is ironic because uh, you remember James and John, uh, the sons of Zebedee, their mother came to Jesus and said, hey, can, you, can, our, can my kids have your the, the two places at your right hand? Uh, one at the right, one at the left. And at the Last Supper, John did have that place, actually. He is one of three apostles to have seen the glorified Christ before the death and resurrection at the Mount of Transfiguration. John was there with Peter and James. And John gives the final eyewitness account of Jesus. Not only in the Gospel of John, but in the book of Revelation. And if you're looking for the glory of Christ... You look for the glory of Christ in the book of Revelation. John saw Jesus in ways that the other apostles never did. Um, he, he saw a vision of Christ that was such that it, it terrified him. It terrified him. So, the disciple that Jesus loved, very special favor. Again, it was written about 85 or 90 A.D., uh, 15 to 20 years after the destruction of Jerusalem. Very important. Historical and theological themes... There's a bunch of them. So do the best you can here. <clears throat> and, and they're so, they're so uh, each one is, is so frequent, you almost don't need to write down those references. You can just write down the, the titles here. Uh, disciples. I didn't give you any references there because there's in 15 chapters. Uh, that's a major theme how he's training the disciples. You have Jesus the man. Jesus the man, and this is important because uh, not only do you have uh, Jesus presented as the Son of God, as we'll see in a moment, but you have Jesus uh, the human being presented. And so if, you're, if you were to pick one book to really put together a, a complete doctrine, a complete Christology, you would probably go to the Gospel of John. You have Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the uh, Old Testament word, Mashiach, the anointed one, um, the one who is chosen. In fact, um, Jewish translations of the Bible by Jewish Christians, um, there's a version called the Tree of Life Version. It's a good version of the Bible, but it's very Jewish in flavor. And and they don't necessarily, uh, in the New Testament, always say Jesus Christ. They say Jesus the Anointed One. Because that's that's really what it means. And it's probably actually closer uh, to... You know, helping us understand the meaning. But what is significant about that? What's significant about it is that Jesus fulfills all the prophecies of a coming anointed one, a coming chosen one, who would be a man and who would be God. Then you have Jesus, the Son of God. And I gave you a, a ton of references there. Why is this important? Well, the, the, even the unbelieving Jews said it themselves, that he calls himself the Son of God, making himself equal with God. And that's something that we don't get in our culture as much, that our kids aren't equal to us. But uh, in a a culture where family is everything, where belonging to a certain family gives you status, when Jesus says, I belong, so to speak, to the family of God, it makes him equal to God. And they, they saw that very clearly. And they saw it so clearly that they tried to kill him for it. They thought he was blaspheming. So he is Jesus the man, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Son of God. And then we take it even more clearly, Jesus who is God. I'm going to read you some of these scriptures. There's some sample claims of the deity of Christ. The very first verse, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You can't get clearer than that. It's interesting that the New World Translation and I use translation loosely because it 's not a translation. The new world translation put out by the jehovah 's witnesses in the mid 1950s um, because it doesn 't fit their theology, they added uh, a uh, an indefinite article in the beginning was the word, and the Word was with God, and the word was a god so it 's not there in Greek, but they added that John one fourteen and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now there's a, there's a theme all through John, especially when Jesus is talking to people who don't believe in him. He, he tells them, I came from my Father. I'm saying everything that my Father has told me to say. He, he makes a claim that I can tell you how to get to heaven because I'm the only one you'll ever meet who's been there, who came from there. John 5.21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. He has authority over life and death. Only God has that. John 6.40, for this is the will of My Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. That's authority to give salvation, and it is the power and the authority to raise from the dead. That's the purview of God only. John seventeen five and these are just samples. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Only God could request of God to be glorified and to have this not be a sinful desire because only God is worthy of glory. Which, incidentally, in the, in the whole uh, prosperity, name it and claim it, charismatic side of things, uh, which, by the way, those are not, they're not that different 90% of Charismatics statistically believe in the prosperity gospel. So they're really basically the same. But there's a big prayer. There's a big push in that movement to pray for glory, to, to get glory. This is tantamount to saying, I want to be like God. Now, will God glorify you? Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time. Uh, we understand that. First Peter 5.10 We understand from uh, Romans 8.30 that those whom He called and justified He will also glorify. But you don't ask for it. It's promised to you. But to ask for it and to, and to demand glory from God is to put yourself in the place of the Son of God. Only the Son of God can say, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence. Only the Son of God can do that because He's God. Only God is worthy of glory. And by the way, that, uh, that proves His pre-existence. It proves His eternal nature as well. The glory I had with you before the world existed. John eight twenty four. I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. He not only has the authority to give salvation, He has the authority to deny salvation. That is the purview of God. In John 16, 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. He has the authority to send the Holy Spirit. You ever set foot in a charismatic church and they claim to be imparting the Holy Spirit to people? That's the purview of God alone. We don't do that. That's that's a silly notion. So Jesus, who is God, I, I would encourage you one time in your life, to, uh, this is me. I don't like to mark up my Bible. People think, well, oh, that's so unspiritual. You should mark up your Bible. I just don't. I like to take notes um, because I like to see the actual text of Scripture, which is more important to me than my own notes about it. Nevertheless, I would encourage you, you can do this one of two ways. Get a, get a Bible you don't, you don't want, care about marking up or just go online to a Bible program. That there's a ton of them. Print out the Gospel of John and get a highlighter and read through the Gospel of John. You can do it in an hour and highlight every verse that talks about the deity of Christ that shows that he's God, that shows that he acts like God. Um, You're going to run out of ink in your highlighter. And I think it's a great exercise to do. I would encourage you to do that one time in your life. I gave a long list of some other uh, themes here and I'll just give you some of the numbers behind them because I want to get to uh, the main theme I see it as the main theme because it's tied to Jesus as the Son of God. So we have the theme of believe. Look how often that comes. 98 times. That's why we would say that the Gospel of John is an evangelistic Gospel. Believe, 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 believe. And it's, it's an imperative. Most of the time it's a command. Why will people go to hell someday? Because they refuse the command of God to believe. 98 times. Jesus is the life, 53 times. Light and darkness. Um, You have light 23 times, darkness 9 times. That that, that contrast is often together. You have truth or the concept of being true, 48 times. Uh, Glory or glorify, 40 times. You have the world, 78 times. And this is an interesting phenomenon. The world. What's the most famous verse about the world in the Gospel of John? For God so loved thee, the world, that he gave his only Son, that whoever should believe in him. Here's a theological question for you. Who is the world? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, here's the world, that whosoever should believe in him should have eternal life. God did not send the Son of God to come to the world out of a general love for all humanity. God does have a general love for all humanity, but that's not the reason He came. Jesus came to save the lost who are elect. And I know that's hard for us to swallow because we don't want to believe truth. But if you study the concept of world in the Gospel of John, you will come to that inescapable conclusion. And why does that make us uncomfortable? I I would ask this question. Why, why, Why should it make you uncomfortable? God is God. I think what makes me uncomfortable is that He saves anyone. He is holy, and we're not. So in, in the Gospel of John, world frequently refers to those that God came to save. And you read through this uh, John chapter ten, my sheep know my voice, my sheep. And so you see this very, very clearly in John that, that Jesus came to save the elect. That's what theologically the, uh, we call limited atonement or particular redemption. It, it's not something theologians made up. It's something that scripture teaches very clearly. You have the theme of hour, um, meaning time. Oh, let me go on to the next slide there. You have the theme of hour, uh, that, there is, that time is short. So you have time being marked. Uh, you have Jew and Jewish, 71 times. So it's clearly a Jewish book. Uh, remain and stay 40 times, witness and bear witness 47 times. And then the one I want to focus in on for a moment, 17 times you have the occurrence of signs. I said earlier that out of the 32 the 38 distinct parables, depending on how you count them, none of them are in John. What you do have though are the signs. And I want to walk through this with you. I know that's hard to see. You might just note the references though. But the, the, the signs, and I've listed seven. Some theologians see eight. It's not a, it's not a, a key argument one way or another. Um, some uh, add one more in there. But we'll go with seven because that seems like a really nice number biblically. But I want to show you this and just take, take a bit of time here. John chapter 2, he changes water to wine. And I remember being a kid hearing this story in Sunday school, and I even wondered who cares? I mean, why not just say, drink water, it's good for you. Well, the point wasn't just to keep his mother, who was probably helping uh, put this wedding together, the point wasn't just to keep his mother from being embarrassed because they didn't have wine at the wedding. The point was to demonstrate something. Right after this, he gives a speech to Nicodemus about what? About the new birth, about being transformed by the Holy Spirit. The second sign we would identify in John 4, the royal official, uh, Jesus heals his son. He heals his son and then he gives a speech about being living water right in that same vicinity. It's, it's right before it in this case, but it's right, right together. You have in chapter 5 an invalid uh, being healed. Right after that we see the account of witnesses to Jesus, those who believe in him. You have in chapter 6 the 5,000 being fed, and he calls himself the bread from heaven. That makes total sense. He feeds them first. Now, this is where some insert an eighth sign, walking on water. Uh, I put those all together. It doesn't make any difference. You're right, they're a sign one way or another. Um, But as far as the signs that have an accompanying sermon that goes with them, uh, there, there are seven of them. You have a blind man being healed. And then Jesus stands up and preaches that he is the light of the world and that he is the good shepherd. You have Lazarus being raised. And during this, right in the middle of that episode, he preaches that he is the resurrection and the life. And then you have uh, Jesus being resurrected himself as the, the final and the greatest sign. And he gives his farewell discourse in chapter 13 through 16, right before the resurrection. Why is this important? Because he speaks to his disciples. He tells them he's going to die, but he speaks to them as if he's going to see them again soon. And he says that, in fact. So, why are these signs here? Why are they why are they there? That brings us to the purpose. And these slides will be online if you want to get into more detail. The signs show that the Christ, the Son of God, is Jesus, and belief in Jesus brings life to the believer. The signs show that the Christ, the Son of God, is Jesus, and belief in Jesus brings life to the believer. John 20, 30 and 31 is the purpose statement of the book. Now, it's interesting. In a lot of New Testament books, the purpose statement comes near the beginning, maybe in the middle. This one's at the, at the very end, John 20. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, But these are written, these what? These signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Now, let me uh, take a little detour here just for a moment. Today, in what many still call the signs and wonders movement, which has basically failed, by the way. They're still gasping along, but the signs and wonders movement has failed uh, because they can't produce anything. They can't give records of true signs and wonders. But the signs and wonders movement basically says this. Just like in the New Testament, where people needed signs and wonders to believe, we need signs and wonders now as an evangelistic tool. And so the idea is, is you invite unbelievers to the church, you have signs and wonders happening, and so people get saved. There's a big problem with this. The signs and wonders aren't happening. They, there's all kinds of ways that these are either faked or they're, they're psychologically manipulated. And anybody who studies this at any level has figured out that the so-called signs and wonders are, are very carefully chosen. That men who claim to have this gift of healing, they, they have a screening process um, where they supposedly heal things that you can't see. Well, I have a sore back and suddenly I don't have a sore back. There's all kinds of reasons that that can be explained. You don't ever see anybody blind suddenly seeing. You don't see anybody who's truly deaf um, suddenly hearing. You don't see any organic illnesses actually healed. And what you sure don't hear about are all the people supposedly healed of cancer who uh, two weeks or two months or two years later die of that same cancer. And what you certainly don't hear about are all the people that are supposedly healed that die anyway. That's 100% of them. Why is this so, so heinous? What that says is that the gospel of John is not good enough for you to come to faith in Christ. You need something new. You need something new. Frankly, I'll take water to wine, a a, a royal official being healed, an invalid being healed, 5,000 people fed, walking on water, a blind man healed, raising men from the dead and raising yourself from the dead. That, if that's not enough for you to believe, then you'll never believe. And what happens is, is that people come into this movement and they, they, they want to believe in the God who does stuff for them. It's a man-centered gospel, which is a false gospel. And so what, they, what they believe is not the gospel. And they may fill churches for a while, but the problem is, is that when the miracles stop, when the, when the spigot dries up, Or when they begin to figure out this doesn't feel right. When they figure out that uh, some of the biggest supposed names in the healing world are filling stadiums with 10, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 people and healing 10. And even those are suspect. Then Then they go, now I don't believe in this God. And they don't just go back to their... Uh, unbelief, they go back to a, a hatred of God, a hatred of Christ because they feel, and rightly so, they feel fooled. So this is why the Gospel of John, when somebody says to you, well, how do I know that God is powerful enough for, to save me? Send them to John. These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Who wants to believe in some guy in a purple suit when you can believe in the Son of God himself? So, uh, it, warn people away from that. That is not a version of Christianity. That is that is a false faith. It's not a denomination. It, it kills me when I hear people saying that the charismatic church is a denomination. It's not. It's a false faith. Now, people might get saved there despite the false faith because a preacher stands up and reads a gospel passage and the Spirit of God uses that to save someone. But that's that's despite that church, not because of it. So I want to be really, really clear about that you want to see signs and wonders, you read the Gospel of John and your eyes will pop out at the things that Jesus does. Now, I told you that uh, the date of the writing after the destruction of Jerusalem would be important. And here's why it's important. Once upon a time, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives. Matthew 24 and 25 says this, and he predicted the destruction of Jerusalem when he was being led to golgotha when he was carrying uh, the, the cross being of the cross on his shoulders and women were weeping he stopped the gospel of luke tells us as he stopped or i don't know if it, i don't remember if it says he stopped but he said don't weep for me weep for yourselves because a day is coming when you will cry for your children and he's referring to the coming destruction of Jerusalem, which would be the judgment on Israel for destroying their own, or for killing, rather, their own savior. They, they couldn't destroy him, obviously. He predicted the destruction of Jerusalem. Everybody poo-pooed him. Oh, that could never happen. We're God's chosen nation. We're God's chosen people. We serve uh, Moses. We're children of Abraham. And they rejected him. 70 AD happens... Rome destroys Jerusalem and it's not just that they conquered it they they knocked every stone off every every other stone they set fire to it the city was completely destroyed now all Jews are diaspora Jews they're all dispersed the nation as we know it came to an end in AD 70 it wasn't until 1948 that any sort of semblance of an Israel came back and that's that's another topic for another day but now Judaism, as a temple-centered faith, is dead. There, there's no temple. How do, you, how do you have a faith where the very center of your worship is destroyed? And So now they're reconstituting themselves as a dispersed faith. The second generation of Jews after the destruction of Jerusalem were basically saying, okay, what now? Where do we go from here? And John writes the Gospel of John. This is a tremendous opportunity to ask, theoretically, to ask this question. Remember the guy who said Jerusalem would be destroyed? Would you like to reconsider him again? The Gospel of John is meant for Jews whose parents rejected Christ to reconsider Christ as the Messiah because of his prediction. And so it's an opportunity for them to say, let's re-examine In light of the fact that Judaism seems to have come apart, let's re-examine Jesus. The Gospel of John makes the most sense to a Jew. It makes sense to a Jew. The I am statements. That makes sense to a Jew that Jesus made. To a Gentile, we want to answer that question. I am who? Uh, That's what they would say. But to a Jew, I am is a claim of deity. I am the bread of heaven. That recalls manna. To a Jew. I am the light of the world. That recalls the Shekinah glory of God over Israel in the wilderness. They they got that. All the I am statements of Jesus refer uh, back to the Old Testament, every one of them. So basically, this is an evangelistic gospel written by a Jew about a Jew to all the Jews. Now, can you, as a Gentile, come to faith in Christ through the Gospel of John? Of course you can. But in its original purpose, this was the purpose of it. Well, let me move on from there. Literary structure is pretty easy uh, gospel to structure. You have the public ministry of Jesus, chapters 1 through 12. And then we have this glorious, uh, the private ministry of Jesus to his disciples in the upper room, uh, chapters 13 through 17. And I, I want to make a little note here. Uh, I, I said upper room here. I have studied this more since then. I think probably around uh, the end of chapter 16, they're walking toward the Garden of Gethsemane and the, the prayer that Jesus makes probably is not in the upper room. But we lump it all together because it's still him having this private ministry um, with, the, with the disciples. Chapters 13 through 17 are basically the, the last words of Jesus to his disciples before his arrest. And then you have the Passion and the resurrection of Jesus. The public ministry, the private ministry, and the Passion, 18-21. through 21. I just listed some key passages here for you. Let's walk through those briefly. Again, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is the eternal pre-existence of Christ, His equality with the Word of God. Um, and you know this, I know that may be confusing. How can God be the Word? How can Christ be the Word? It, 1 uh, Corinthians 2 calls the, the Bible the mind of Christ. That we have the mind of Christ. He is so associated with truth, with his truth, that he calls himself the Word. And so that's, it's just a very, very close association. So much so that he's called the Word. Eternal preexistence, equality with the Word. John 3.16 For God so loved the world... That he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It is not that God loves you because you believed in Jesus. I want to be very clear about this. The Bible does not teach that God loves you because you believed in Jesus. The Bible teaches that God loves you and therefore sent Jesus so that you would believe. That's a big difference. So John 3.16 tells us that God's love came first. And it was always there. John 10.30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. This is another example of the deity of Christ. Um, and it's what's called a neuter pronoun. It asserts unity, togetherness, nature, togetherness of nature or essence. Um, in fact, uh, Jews understood this. And when Jesus said in that particular Greek construction, I and the Father are one, they picked up stones to, to try to kill him. Because they believed he was claiming to be equal to God, which he was. John 13-17, through again, the upper room discourse, we learn so much from that. Chapter 13, uh, we learn uh, that that if you want to be the greatest, you must be the least. Jesus acts like a slave. He washes his disciples' feet and teaches them that this is what you must do. Chapter 14, he teaches them about heaven. That I go away to prepare a place for you. Uh, Chapter 14, 1 through 3 are three verses. I've studied more than any three verses in the entire Bible. And it's very clearly talking about the rapture of the church. I've preached this before. You can go back and listen to that if you want. But he teaches about heaven. Chapter 15, he gives essentially what the disciples ought to be preaching when they're preaching the gospel. Any branch that does not abide in the vine, does not bear fruit, is cut off and is burned in the fire. He's telling them to preach a gospel of repentance, a gospel of bearing fruit. Chapter 16, you get the uh, many of the, the best promises of the Holy Spirit. That also happens in chapter 14. And then, of course, chapter 17, you have the great high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ where he actually, near the end of the prayer, prays for you. He says, I not only pray for these, meaning the, the disciples that are with him, but I pray for all who will believe in my name. And what does he pray? that they may be with me where I am so that they may behold my glory. So Jesus has already prayed for you to go to heaven. John 14, 6, key, key verse. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It denies any other way of salvation. Any, any religion that says you can get to God or a version of God without Christ is a false religion. You must go through Christ. There's no such thing as a Christless a Christless faith in God. John fourteen twenty six. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Uh, two things there. We get the coming of the Holy Spirit predicted by Jesus because he's going, to, he's going to send Him or whom the Father will send in my name. It's the same difference. And by the way, He tells the disciples who will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Where do we have that? in our New Testament? That's a promise of an inspired word of God to complete the, the Old Testament. And then John 20:31, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in His name. Salvation is in Christ. That's the purpose of the book. And how do you have life? You believe in Christ, in Christ alone. Now, there's a couple of interesting interpretive issues in John. Well, there's more than a couple. There's a couple dozen, but I'll, I'll do a couple for you. Chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. A lot of ink and probably some blood has been spilled over this particular verse. It is, uh, it is difficult to interpret if you just look at the verse alone, once you look at the whole Bible, it becomes quite simple. So here's, here's a sample of some of the interpretations that are out there. Um, some would say the water is the seed of a man joining with a woman to produce a child. That That's conception. Uh, there, there's, there's no evidence there. That's pure speculation. Uh, I don't think any couple, any married couple has ever said, let's have children. And the way they've, they've phrased that is, let's have someone born of water. Uh, no one's ever said that. Uh, Others say it is physical birth itself. Oh no, my water broke. And so that's where we get that. That's again, pure speculation. And and by the way, um, this is an admonition. Why would Jesus tell anybody, look, you need to make sure and be born physically before you can be born. Um, I'm already here. So why would you tell me that? So that makes no sense whatsoever. Some say it is the Holy Spirit himself But that would be redundant. Born of water and the Spirit. Others say it's the Word of God. Now we're getting a little closer. Um, The Word of God is like water. It is like cool living water. Jesus himself is is the Word. And so we're maybe getting close, but the context doesn't allow for that. He's not talking about the Word. Some say it's the baptism of John the Baptist. Unless you're born of water and the Word, well, that limits salvation to one generation. So it can't be that. Others say that this is Christian baptism. Now, this is what is a doctrine called baptismal regeneration. This is a works based salvation, that unless you're baptized uh, in water, you can't be saved. Uh, What's our easiest argument against that? It's the thief on the cross, right? Uh, Nobody came up to him with a bucket of water and said, Wait, don't die yet, and, and splashed him. It's not Christian baptism. Jesus was speaking, and this is why context is everything, Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus. And what he said to Nicodemus, in sort of a rebuke, he said, aren't you the teacher of Israel? The teacher of Israel was somebody that would be recognized as the ultimate expert. In fact, just a week or two ago, today's ultimate expert in the Torah died. And he was revered by hundreds of thousands of Jews. He was in his 90s. Considered to be the ultimate expert in the Torah. And ironically, um, never saw Messiah in the Torah. Never saw Jesus there. Um, But when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, he is speaking to the teacher of Israel, an expert in the Old Testament. And and let me tell you, when we're talking about an expert in the Old Testament, the rabbi who just died... um, He's famous for having been told, uh, asked the question, how many references to Moses are there in the Torah? And he says, uh, 95. And they say, no, there's 97. All the best experts say there's 97. And he says, oh, but two of those are the same Hebrew root letters as Moses, but it's not Moses, it's talking about something else. So he knew his stuff. So when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, and he says that you must be born of water and the Spirit, Nicodemus knew what he was talking about. What he was talking about was Ezekiel 36, 24-28. Purification, cleansing. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. What is that? That's the new covenant. That's the new covenant. Hebrews 10.22, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What is Jesus referring to of being born of water and of the Spirit? It is at least partly, if not fully, a, a reference to the doctrine of regeneration, which is what being born again is. It's necessary for salvation. Titus 3.5 says, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Now, what is this based in, and why would Nicodemus be expected to understand this? In the Old Testament law, and and this is a really important distinction to to make, there were two steps to receiving at least temporal forgiveness from God. Most people think of the Old Testament law, well, yeah, you, you made sacrifices and you were forgiven. No, that's step two. Step one, ceremonially, is to be clean. You didn't go to the temple with a dirty body, or to the tabernacle, rather. You didn't go to the tabernacle with dirty clothing. You didn't go to the tabernacle having just touched a dead body. And there are all kinds of requirements to be clean. Now, it's not external works-based salvation. It's simply a picture for us. That you had to be clean before you could be forgiven. Before you could appear before God. And so when Jesus says um, that you must be born of water and the Spirit, we can put these events together as basically one event, regeneration, but what's the idea? The Spirit of God will not indwell an unclean person. You are cleansed of your sin and the Spirit indwells you and you're born of the Spirit. So regeneration happens and then the the indwelling of the Spirit. So this is the doctrine of regeneration. This is not Christian baptism. It is not the fact that you are physically born and we've already already done that, so that's, that's not necessary. Uh, which, by the way, that argument that you must be physically born in order to be saved, that sends every aborted baby to hell. And that sends every miscarriage to hell. And that's the opposite. Every one of those go to heaven. I'm going to preach a message on that in a few months. This is the doctrine of regeneration. So, when you read that from now on, uh, you don't have to wonder, have I been born of the water and of the Spirit? Yes, you have. You absolutely have. You've been cleansed. You've been made new. And then this one, a little bit of the contextual work makes this pretty easy to understand. But uh, can we go on to the next slide there? I think I waited too long. There we go. John twenty twenty two. Jesus was appearing to his disciples after his re- resurrection. And he said, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. What is this? I, I, I've heard this preached that that's when the Holy Spirit was given to the apostles. Some say that was the full bestowal of the Holy Spirit. He was very clear, though, in John sixteen seven. this is why context answers these questions. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. Some say it was the full bestowal of the Holy Spirit. Context doesn't allow that. Others say it was temporary. It didn't serve any purpose. The Holy Spirit was coming in a few days anyway after this the only really uh, satisfying answer is it's an anticipation of the future bestowal of the Holy Spirit. Because this isn't the first time he said this. In John 7, beginning in verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive... For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. What does that mean? Well, it means that he hadn't finished his ministry, he hadn't ascended into heaven, into glory again. And then, obviously, in the greater context of Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit came after the ascension of Christ. So, when you read that, it's it's anticipation of something that's going to happen, and he gives them a word picture. He gives them the same word picture as uh, he gave Nicodemus, In John 3, that the Holy Spirit is like the wind who blows, the wind blows where it wills. And so there's a little side note here. When Jesus breathed on them, he gave him the illustration. What does that also tell us? It tells us that the bestowal of the Holy Spirit on people is God's business, he decides. And so he gives a little lesson there that when they do receive the Holy Spirit, anticipating this, it will be because God decided, not because they, they, uh, they begged and pleaded. It will be because God's already made that determination. It is faulty. It is horrible to tell somebody, let's pray for you to receive the Holy Spirit. Unless you're praying for their salvation. You can tell them that. I'm praying for you to receive the Holy Spirit because that means you've come to faith in Christ. But don't make the Holy Spirit the center of the gospel. The Holy Spirit is not the center of the gospel. The Holy Spirit is the means, the enactment of the gospel. Christ is the center of the gospel. So, when you come across that and somebody says, well, even before Acts, um, people had the Holy Spirit. No, they didn't. Not to that level. So, there it is. Two biggest uh, interpretive issues in John. There are others, as I said. I've got two minutes for questions on the gospel of John, if if you have any. While you're thinking, uh, as, we go through, as we go through the New Testament, I just want to remind you again, the, the talks that I'm doing are designed for those who have read the book <laughs> recently. So maybe it's slightly helpful if you haven't read it, but read through it if you can um, before we get to it. And amazingly, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I'll let you guess which one's going to come next. What do you think? Acts. That's right. Very good. What questions do you have about John or anything we talked about today? So I just wanted to ask, the book of uh, John was written for the Jewish people? That was the original audience, yes. Um, I think it was written for the Jewish people and also for me. And also for me, that's right. Alfredo makes a great point that the gospel of John is very clear that he came for Jews to save them and they didn't want him, but to all who do believe in him, he who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. So there's the answer to the question, what does this do for a Gentile reading that if I believe in him, I too can become a child of God. Good point, Alfredo. Alfredo is a theologian of of renown, so we appreciate that. Any other questions? You can ask me anything. We got two or three minutes. Yeah, Chris. Don't really have to do with John, but I always wondered what we call the passion. Passion of Christ. Where did that term come from? I never understood that. You know, I'm I'm trying to remember off the top of my head, but it's not from the English word. It's not it's not the same way we use the word passion. Um it it, it I believe and I'll look it up, but I believe it has to do with suffering that it's from either a Latin or a Greek root that has to do with suffering, but I don't remember, so I'll have to check. So now, now I was reading through it, and I'm like, I can't remember that either. I'll bet somebody's going to ask that question. <laughs> so thank you, Chris, appreciate that. This is on recording for all time. So, no, I, I, it has to do with suffering. It's the suffering, so when we say the Passion Week, it's the week of Christ's suffering. So, and David, I thought I saw your hand there. Because Jesus commanded it. Because Jesus commanded it. It's that simple. He commands it. And it is a... a, If you're unwilling to follow... That'll be the easiest thing you ever do that Jesus commands. Being baptized is way easier than wives submitting to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Um, Slaves, obey your masters. Um, Obey the government to the the best of your ability. Um, Baptism is is symbolic it doesn't save but it is a symbol and it is also it serves as a public proclamation of christ generally speaking when somebody says i don't want to be baptized and they're basically saying I, I i don't want to be embarrassed well jesus said if you're ashamed of me i'll be ashamed of you which means you can't be saved so when somebody says i'm a christian i just don't want to be baptized okay you're not a christian I don't know you are, and I don't even know they're a Christian after they're baptized, but I have a much better idea. Baptism, we're we're identified with Christ. We go down to the grave with him. We come up in new life with him. We're cleansed of sin. It has um, so many beautiful uh, purposes, but a main purpose is to um, make a public proclamation of faith. And so you know, I had somebody tell me, well, I baptized myself. That's not a public proclamation of faith. You know, and your bathtub doesn't count. Um, so, I, you know, it's really simple for me. If somebody says, well, I don't want to be baptized, um, okay, then I'm not going to consider you a believer. It doesn't mean I'm not going to be nice to you, but you can't be a member because we, our, our members are believers. So, um, if, you, if you don't want to be baptized, generally it comes down to pride. I don't want to be embarrassed. Or, you know, my answer to that is always, Well, if you don't want to be embarrassed by getting in some water in front of people who have all done this, then when you're out in the world and somebody says, do you serve Jesus? What are you going to say? So, uh, I I think you just say, it's, it's a matter of obedience. Jesus commanded this. Go therefore into all the world and do what? Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So, it's part of it's part of being in the church, so and that somebody might say, "Well, that are you a Baptist?" Theologically, yeah, absolutely. If you if you say we believe that uh, people should be baptized when they're saved, sure, yeah, yes. The the entire Carr family has a question. Sure, and I understand that. Uh, But most people haven't thought about it. But if they have thought about it, and they say, well, that was just a timing issue. You couldn't possibly be baptized. Okay, so what about somebody else who can't possibly be baptized? Um, Let's say somebody gets saved in a hospital bed, and they can't be baptized, and they die. Would that person be saved? Oh, well, of course they would be. Okay, now what about somebody who is in, in a plane crash? And... They, they, they come to faith in Christ three minutes before that plane hits the ground. They couldn't be baptized, are, are they safe? Well, of course, and you come up with all these exceptions, and so then you can say, so in other words, baptism is not necessary for salvation, all right? So yeah, the, if there's one example, then there can be a 1,000, which is why I don't believe one single person can ever lose their salvation, because if one can lose them, lose your salvation, then, then all can, now you have a king without a kingdom, you have a savior without the saved, so. Um, but that's actually, I would call that the weakest argument. the The stronger argument um, is that uh, any work that we do, there is no work that leads to salvation. This is why we don't do an altar call, because I don't want one person thinking that because they walked fifteen feet and knelt down at a piece of wood that that makes them saved. I don't ever want to give that impression. Uh, that's why we don't do uh, the, the typical southern baptist with every eye closed and every head bowed uh, if you want to come to faith in christ you raise your hand there's a work right there now if you did come to faith in christ and you raised your hand it wasn't you raising your hand that did it it was the, the work of the spirit i just don't want to be responsible for misleading anybody so um If somebody says, and this is why we take a testimony before baptism, somebody says, I want to come to full faith in Christ and so I'm going to be baptized. No, you're not a Christian. Or you need to understand that you're already in the faith, one of the two. So uh, the thief on the cross argument is a good argument, but it's probably the weakest one, admittedly. Uh Uh-oh, 1026. We'll do one more question. Yes, sir. If if one truly believes, could they be part of the elect? Say that again. If one truly like, did, believes the gospel, the, the, the elect will always believe at some point. What salvation is, is the elect being connected to the gospel and they will believe. Um, in fact, uh, Acts, and I know, I know we're short on time, but this is a, this is a great passage. Acts thirteen forty eight. <clears throat> Gentiles are hearing the gospel <clears throat> and listen to this. And when the Gentiles heard this, They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, ready for this, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. All the ones appointed to eternal life believed. And somebody might say, well, isn't that mean? What about people who aren't elect but want to be Christians? That person does not exist. There's no such thing. Yeah, Caleb. What if um, if a person never heard the gospel? If they never heard the gospel, what time is it? (laughs) if they never heard the gospel I'm going to answer this question this is important if they never heard the gospel God is sovereign and we start there we start with the sovereignty of God but you see um, Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God and that creation itself uh, Romans 1 says creation itself points us toward a creator God and so uh, Romans 1 says that no man has an excuse that creation itself, creation doesn't tell us the details of the gospel, but creation tells us that there is a creator and there is somebody we need to be seeking for. And if, if a person by the spirit of God is going to be saved, they will hear the gospel. So um, at that point, we give that over to the purview of the sovereignty of God and we don't judge him. We don't, we don't judge um, uh, his purposes. Uh, every single person is going to die either in faith or out of the faith. And so we trust the sovereignty of God, but there's no excuse. Nobody will stand before God and say, I didn't know you existed. Yes, you do. Look at the stars. That's what Psalm 19 says. So um, that's a tough question. That's a really fast answer, but um, there's no excuse. Scripture's clear about that. All right, now we have to be done. So I'm going to go ahead and dismiss you and we'll see you in a few minutes. Thank you for your questions.